Welcome, ladies, to the Real Estate Investor Show, providing inspiration, strategies, and insight to empower women investors to live balanced and financially free lives. Now, here are your co-hosts, Liz and Andressa. On today's episode, ladies, we have Erin L. She talked a lot about scaling her business by putting the right systems and processes in place. And while we talk about that a lot, she goes into detail on how she did it to get her business thriving and larger than she ever expected. And one thing that she said that she focusing two different exit strategies. And I think that's a great point because many times we want to fulfill all our goals, all our dreams in one, and then it doesn't match. So I really appreciate that she breaks down her criteria, her personal criteria, sometimes has nothing to do with cash flow. And she is a former army officer. So you bet you're going to get a lot out of building process and systems out of this episode. So enjoy. Interest rates are sky high in 2023 and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an eight, nine or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent to retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, they've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high cash flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Welcome back, ladies. This is Liz. And this is Andressa. Welcome back to the Real Estate Investor Show, where we are all about empowering women to live a financially free and balanced life. Erin, thank you so much for being here on our show. We appreciate you, uh, your time and sharing your wisdom with our community. Yeah. Thank you so much for letting me be here. I'm excited. Absolutely. And thank you for being back on our show, all of you amazing women listening and men, because men also love our show. So we appreciate everyone being back. And first thing we like to do is just get connected to all of you. Andressa, what is happening? Well, we hear a lot about networking, right? Networking is so important to build your business and to connect with other people so you can get to know them, leverage. But for people like me, introverts, networking is actually a freaking nightmare. <laughs> we don't want to do that. We are forced to do that. And we talk to three, four people we are like, we're done for the night because this is draining me to my core, right? But we understand that. So anytime that we go to a conference or a big event, to me is really, really important. I get bored with certain conversations that are seems repetitive. So I get, I enjoy when I meet somebody that it's, we're both getting to know each other in a deeper level, just 
going from like a transactional networking to a more like, okay, we are really connecting, right? And the reason why I'm saying this to you is because I'm sick and tired of doing this. We're not going to do that on our investor con coming up on June 23rd and 24th, where Kim Kasaki is going to be our keynote speaker. Liz and I really put together what we are calling mindful networking, where you will know why you're going to that specific table to talk about that specific, or if you want to take time for yourself, or if you want to do one-on-one. So it's really mindful. So you really can get to know the other person. The worst thing that you can do is to attend a conference this size and just get to know a few people, right? So we're going to really encourage you to know the person that is sitting next to you to create small circles. So you really can go a little bit deeper and, and create a relationship that goes beyond this conference. That's our main goal, that you meet incredible people that you can really build a relationship beyond the conference. So, so if you get want to get more information about InvestorCon 2022, we have the link below, or you can go to our website, therealestateinvestor.com slash InvestorCon. That's all I got for today, Liz. That's all you got for today. Love it. Mindful networking. Let's bring that into our life, ladies, because that is that is really powerful. Uh, so Aaron, thank you again for, for being here and, and sharing your wonderful wisdom with our community and our audience. So we always like to kind of kick things off and really get into some of your why. And the way we like to ask that is, you know, what really propelled you to begin investing in real estate? Yeah. Um, I think what was really like my big impetus after a couple of years of analysis paralysis, which I think most people hang out in for some time, you know, how long you spend there is entirely up to you, but I was probably there for two to three years potentially even more than that, because I have always thought about investing. I always wanted to flip. And it wasn't until I got out of the army and suddenly became a stay-at-home mom that I really, really looked into it. But mostly I was too scared. And then I actually got diagnosed with a heart condition and had just a lot of you know emotional processing to do and felt sorry for myself for a couple of weeks. And then I finally said, you know what? there's no better time than the present. And I just dove in and I haven't looked back since. So I think that that sort of like facing your mortality and just like literally being told by a doctor that this heart condition could end my life at any moment was super eye-opening. And, you know, that's not unique to any of us. Anything could happen anytime, but I had a one-year-old and a deployed husband when I found out all of this. So it was a lot to deal with. I had also recently gotten out of the army, lost that network, became a stay-at-home mom, became a mom. So lots of transitions at one time. So anyway, that really propelled me to take that first step. And then since that, we've had a second child and they are really my like main motivators right now. My husband's still active duty. I've got a three and a five-year-old girl and I just want to hang out with them and I want to hang out with our family and I want us to make tons of money so we can go anywhere we want and be completely financially free, have all the time freedom we want. And like little kids have a really good way of grounding you in that kind of a why. I love what you say. A couple of things that stood out for me is like, you were scared of real estate, but you're coming from the army. So I was like, wait a minute, what's going on over there? <laughs> but there were a lot of different pieces, right? Your heart condition, the baby... It doesn't seem that the stars were aligned, but you had the awakening moment of like, why not? Why not now? Why not me? Why not start building my life right now? And you said that you procrastinated. My question to you is what skills that you gain from the army that you believe that have helped you to break this procrastination cycle and really like move forward? Yeah, I would say when I so when I first got started, like my first one or two, it was really just sort of that ability to assess risk. And so the really how I kind of dealt with that was like separated our personal finances and the money that we were living off of, which halved overnight. Both my husband and I were active duty, made the same amount of money. I got out of the army and suddenly cut in half, right? So we set aside money, you know, we had that. And then I opened up an LLC and I made an investment in that and just really separated that. It was That was really helpful for me who's, who's a big future planner and just worried about the risk of, you know, when you're first getting started, everyone tells you it's so risky and all this stuff. So anyway, I, that was a, a big thing was like being able to assess risk and sort of put some systems in place so that it didn't 
feel as risky. And then I think as I got more into it and scaled, my ability to manage a team and to build systems and processes that could scale not only my portfolio, but my team as well have been super helpful in just you know business in general. You're singing on Jess's music there, or whatever the term is when you're singing someone's, you know, you're, you're speaking to their soul. So you're speaking on Jess's soul with systems and processes, um, and which is which is really, really critical, right, for this business. But we talk about that a lot, and everyone knows that's important. But let's talk about that a little bit, because I think how you do it and what approach you take specifically for the people that are not system-oriented and process-oriented, they need those pieces. So, it's a nightmare, too. Yes. For a lot of people are like, gosh, I'll pay so I don't need to even think about it or I'm just going to shove it, pretend I don't need that. I'm not a systems and processes person, but I really appreciate them and I need them and I look for them now, right? If that makes any sense. I'm not someone who's naturally going to create them or think about it all the time. But I think in, in any side of this business, you need them and, and you need to be part of the process on some level and then, and then use them. So tell us when that came in came in for you? Was it after the first several deals? Was it the first deal? Are you naturally very process oriented and systems oriented? I'll also ask you that. Yeah. And then, I and would, then walk us through that. Yeah. I would say that I'm naturally very systems and process oriented and everything that I do from like household chores, management to, you know, business stuff, I'm always looking for a way to make it more efficient. And also like, I always have this end goal of like hiring it out, like whether that's, you know, meal prep or flipping a house. And so that does come naturally to me. And I think that's why I was able to scale pretty quickly. But I would say what really made us put a lot of things like on autopilot or really build a team to implement the systems that I created was when my husband got stationed in California. So we were in Tennessee, which is where we live now. But about four years ago, he was sent to California to do a graduate degree. So he was there for a year and a half. And one of the biggest frustrations as a military spouse is like the constant picking up and leaving. And it's really difficult to maintain a career, which is why I did I do what I do, a huge part of why I do that, do this. And so I just wanted to make sure that I like didn't lose anything. And I was very focused on that. Like I was like, we're going to spend like three weeks driving across the country, visiting family. I need to maintain the same amount of income throughout that. Cause I was still doing flips. I was still doing things in that process. I was like, I, I don't have time to slow any of the money coming in down because I certainly have tons of money going out. So I planned for that for a long time. What I realized though, is that when I got to California, I no longer had a job. I had outsourced everything. I had built teams, put systems in place that I was like, well, now what am I going to do? Because I was a realtor here in Tennessee, decided not to get my license in California for a multitude of reasons because we were only there for a short period of time. And it was sort of taking away from my investing too. And then I decided to launch my coaching business because when I got there, I was like, well, set up a nanny. I got everything set up in the house. And I like sat down to work like the first week. And I was like, I don't actually have anything to do. All my houses were managed by property managers. I hired project managers in addition to the general contractors. I had assistance for my accounting. You know, I just like had everything hired out. And that makes a lot of sense. So, so let's go, let's break it down again for the, for the, and it sounds like you had a, you had a knack for that, which is awesome and, and so helpful. Right. But for so many people, they're attracted to real estate investing for different reasons. They start flipping, they start buying rental properties, right? And you know they may not be as kind of process oriented per se. And then they look at their portfolio, right? They look at their 10 deals, there's 10 properties and they feel, they know they need a better system in place. They know they need better systems and processes in place. What do they do? What is that first, second, third step? What's the first thing they should do? Run. Run. <laughs> yeah. That's right. They may not be the best person to put all those processes in place, but regardless, they need to do something. They need to take some action. What were some of those first things that you did to kind of organize your business? Well, yeah. So I actually, the first time around, like in that case, I kind of, I did it in a way that a lot of people were telling me to do, but it's not the way that I do it anymore. So I remember hearing a lot of times when I first started in business, like you don't want to be in the business. You want to work on the business. If you ever want freedom, you need to like put, you know, these systems processes in place. And then I think the other thing that people emphasize is like, if you're not making $800 an hour, if it's not an $800 an hour task or whatever that monetary number is, hire it out. And so that's what I did. I hired out like the lower level tasks. But what I've learned now is like, there's some lower level tasks that I really enjoy doing. And there's some really higher level tasks that just suck the life out of me. And I hate 
doing them. And so what happens is on Sunday, when I get my to-do list together, put these on there and I put them up like one, two, three, because they're probably the most important things. And then on Thursday, I realized everything else on my list is crossed off and I still haven't done those things. And so I now hire those things out, the things that I really don't want to do. I either hire them out or figure out how to eliminate them. I think that's a huge thing that you learn as a business owner. And I think sometimes women can have a hard time with that because we tend to be so task oriented and we want to like make these lists and cross them off. And especially when we're at home with kids, like we're like, we want to feel productive, but the difference between like productive and efficient or productive productivity and income producing activities can be super different. So the folk, you know, make sure that you're only doing things that are contributing to the bottom line, which in the most, in most situations is making money or something that's contributing to making money. And then the other things you either get rid of them, don't do them at all, or have someone else do them for you. Another thing that I, particularly women probably have a harder time with is trusting that, you know, they're worthy of hiring that out, bringing someone else on and realizing like, you're, you're going to get a significant ROI. Like you might spend a thousand bucks on whoever you're hiring to do this, but turn around, you make $4,000. Everyone's happier. Everyone's better off. So as kind of a roundabout answer, but I think it's about like looking at your why, you know, and figuring out what, why you want to be in real estate, what you want to pursue, what you want your life to look like and what you want to be doing. And if it doesn't accommodate your why, but it has to be done, have somebody else do it. I love that. I call that the procrastination list. And if I, people are not coming in, I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, the procrastination list is that item that is in your list for the past six months. They're just like, oh, it's going, keep going, keep coming back, right? So that's your procrastination list. I saw this another day that I was a very cool concept about hiring, right? And it's not a cost. It's actually an investment. And women in real estate, we're investing in properties. So when you start looking to building a team, I encourage you to think about it is also an investment. And the same way, as Arian was saying, I needed to mitigate my risk. So I needed to really understand how things work. You're going to do the same thing with hiring people. Because one of the biggest questions that we get asked is like, how can I trust them? And how can they not like run with my training and need to start all over again and all of that? Actually, the trust is that you don't trust that you're going to make a right decision. So how can you put KPIs in place or metrics that you will really help you to mitigate? And that's what I want to go with you. When you're hiring somebody, what are you looking for? Because uh, a lot of the ladies like, well, I don't even know. Like, I, can you just come wash me and, and just like take over? But I don't even know what I don't want. As you mentioned, like they connect their value to what they do. If they don't do, if they're not busy, then the, like, what's the purpose of this, right? So how would you start the hiring process? I'm curious about building the, your hiring process. Could you break down what, what do you do to find the right people for you and for your company? Yes, absolutely. And so again, this is something that has changed for me. When I first started hiring, I used like, I think I used Upwork or some online platform where you can just, you know, peruse people's uh, resumes and post jobs, things like that. And I didn't do a very good job. I went through like three assistants, like the first one I hired and I had a bunch of things for them to do. And then like they did all these things and I didn't have anything else. And then the second time I hired like the first person that was available and that didn't work out. And then my most recent hire was great. She was fantastic. I thought she was like going to like take over my company one day. And then one day she just decided she didn't want to work anymore and just literally didn't show up. Oh. So that's, you know, hiring is a challenge. So what I do now, well, and actually before I go there, let's kind of rewind a little bit. I think kind of like what you were saying, Andressa, is that you have to figure out what it is that you're hiring for. So back to that procrastination list or like your to-do list that you never get through, like you've got to have a good idea of what you are hiring and then figure out you know, how those translate on a resume, which can be challenging. The good thing is when you're, when you're hiring women, I think that women tend to be a little more honest on their resumes. I've seen some really funny statistics about how 
men inflate their resumes by certain amounts or they feel like they need like two of the five requirements for a job where women think they're they good to go. Yeah. 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 I yeah. saw that. So, I was like, this is crazy. Unless we know yeah. all, all this stuff, we're good. And then, then men like, Oh, I check two boxes. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> I'll figure this out. I got this. Yeah. I'll figure yeah, it out. So, yeah, yeah. So I think that's, you know, step one, figuring out what it is you need those, that person to do because hiring takes time and can be draining. And then of course, onboarding and training is a lot too. So you don't want to do that too often. And so after doing that, like three times, you know, not very well, I think the third time I had it done pretty well and I hired the right person, but then I just, it just wasn't a thing she wanted to do forever. So anyway, fast forward, what I do now is I work with organizations that have virtual assistants and what they do is they pay, like I use Rocket Station right now, which is focused on real estate or has a real estate focus. And what they do, you pay them actually to build out your systems. It's like $1,800 or something on the front side. And they build these huge SOPs for you. You kind of go through with them what it is that you're trying to hire for. They build these SOPs, standard operating procedures, and then they train their team. And if you have an issue with the members of their team, you just tell them, you tell like your point of contact, they will go do like counseling or development with that person. If for some reason, like that person leaves the company or, you know, quits or gets sick or something, they will just backfill someone else and they will train that next person too. And they provide them with the resources and the training. And if like you were to say to them, like one issue I have with my current assistant is just, she kind of lacks attention to detail. She's the complete opposite of me, which makes us a great team. She's super creative, very artistic. And I'm the opposite. I have like zero, you know, no, uh, anything going on in my right brain and I'm very detail oriented. And so that's a little bit of a frustration with her. It's just like the lack of detail. And so I'll just go and I'll take that to her supervisor. And then she works on it with her and she's getting better all the time. So that's kind of where I'm at now because again, my why, like I don't want to spend a lot of time developing people. I spend a lot of time in the army doing counseling and having really tough conversations. And I, while I do actually enjoy that, like the professional development piece of it, it's also very draining and it's just not something I want to do right now. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And, and to be able to go to that one-stop shop, right. Makes, makes all the difference. So you're a little more peaceful, a little more, a little more focused. I love that. I want to also go here with you, Erin, reading your bio, reading some of the questions, you know, uh, you answered and just trying to get to know you a bit better. You said something interesting and I want to just speak to that because I think this is what you do focus your energy on those, those bigger ticket, ticket items to grow your business. You said, I fell in love with chasing the deal, negotiating and possibilities this is going to bring me. That's something you you mentioned. And tell us a bit about chasing the deal and negotiating, because that is two things that some women really fear and other women run towards, especially the negotiating part. And I love hearing when women are like master negotiators and just making deals happen. I think that's a skill that is so important in this business. And it's incredibly important for women, of course. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you chase deals, how you used to, yeah. how you chase deals now, but most importantly, the chasing the deal, negotiating kind of go hand in hand. Tell us a little about your, your magic when it comes to that, because you clearly have figured something out with your, the scale that you're at right now. Yeah. So I think in terms of chasing the deal, I, I think the only thing that's really changed from the beginning is in the beginning, I just didn't really think there were a lot of deals. I didn't really know where to find them. I didn't understand that you had to like network and build the relationships with people that are going to bring you the deals. And now I get so many deals. Like, you know, I probably get, I bet I'll log back into my email after this and I'll have 15 new deals in my inbox from realtors all over the country, wholesalers. And I spend a lot of time just like, if I'm ever sitting on my phone, I'm not, I'm not perusing Facebook. I'm 100% on Zillow, like just looking at real estate. I'm obsessed with it. I love doing it. And so I'll get on Every email list, anytime I look in a market, I'll connect with a couple of different realtors. I'm a realtor too. So I get tons and tons of deals coming to my inbox. And so, you know, what I've learned, even during this crazy market cycle that everyone's always talking about, there's no deals, there's no good deal. You know, there's nothing good to find. Like I very, very much disagree with that. You're just, you know, not looking for them in the right places, but there are definitely deals. So in terms of negotiation, sort of two things to this. I think for one, you have to figure out what it is that the seller actually wants. Like you have to figure out whoever has the deal could be a wholesaler, could be a seller. You could be going direct. Maybe you're going with a realtor through a realtor. You just have to kind of get to the root of their motivation. And a lot of times it's not money. Like it's usually not a money thing. Sometimes people want 
extra time in the house so they can find a place to live. Like I know that's a thing right now because it's hard to buy. Other times people want to get out quickly. Other times people don't want to make any repairs. Sometimes people do want to make repairs. So you kind of, if you can figure that out and get to know the motivations of these, you know, whoever you're getting this deal from, that is a huge leg up because then you're able to solve their problem or create a solution to their issue, which is the whole goal. And so, you know, if you're going direct with a seller, it's a lot easier to do that. And just, you want to get them to know, like, and trust you. And you want to get them to believe in your strategy or your idea for the property, which might sound like fluffy, but you know, I think it's just you being able to communicate what your vision is. And that can be really powerful if you believe in it and you're able to communicate that belief in it. So I think that's a big thing. And then the other thing is when you're negotiating, it cannot be from a place of emotion. It can't be like this hunch, like a property will probably appraise for 500, but I just really think it's worth 550. Like that is not a good place to negotiate from. I think that, you know, you have to have your ducks in a row. You have to have it in black and white. And what I mean by that are comps and valuation to support the dollar amount that you're pursuing. And then also a report of the condition of the property, um, or even maybe the potential of the property, again, in black and white from a subject matter expert and appraiser or something like that. And that's what, and then an inspector, contractor, foundation specialist, whatever it is, that's what you use to negotiate on. And then you essentially just have this conversation, have respect for the other person. Don't get emotional. Don't get angry about it. And just say like, okay, I know this is what you want to do. This is what I want to do. Here's the reality of what we're dealing with. How can we meet somewhere? It doesn't have to be in the middle. It doesn't have to be anything. It just has to be a solution that works for both. And I think that the best way to do that is just to be, have it in black and white, literally in writing and take emotion out of it. Curious to hear how many deals have you walked away from? You made an offer, you did your, you did your analysis, you know, your number, you know, you made the offer. They said, go pound sand or whatever they wanted to say to you. How many deals did you follow your advice that you're saying right now, where you just walked away? And you're done. Like how how many? Tons. I I mean, all of them that didn't accommodate the analysis that I came up with 100% of the time. Like the one time that I got a little bit emotional and, and considered pursuing it and hoping that the seller would come around was this recently I got a 43 unit under property under contract. And we went through due diligence, took tons of time with my property manager, my contractor inspectors, and then the people that wanted to invest with me. And I just felt when I was going to walk away, because we were trying to renegotiate, which interestingly, the price we asked for was the exact same to the dollar of the previous buyer who also walked away. And the seller said no to both of us. And I considered pursuing the deal because I felt like I was wasting a lot of people's time. Mm. A lot of like, you know, people who were what, who I saw like doing more than me and who I felt honored that would want to invest with me. And so I just felt like I was wasting their time and I considered pursuing the deal because of it. And then I just realized like, nope, we have to go back. The numbers do not work. It's if this is not going to work now, it's not going to work next year. And I finally decided to walk away. I really appreciate you bringing this up because a lot of people, I think that when they are in the middle of a negotiation and they ask, should I counter more? Should I walk away? Should I just go pounce in you? (laughs) Or should I quit real estate or whatever option is on the table? So it it really depends, but it, it gets hard when you don't have those criteria on paper. Really, like, what are the criteria that you're using in order to make a decision? Does that fit your goal? If you have a minimum cash flow, is it meeting that goal? If you have your goal for the year or your risk mitigation, is that all ticking the boxes? Is it an area that is appreciating or you don't care about that? You care about cash flow? Does school, you can go over and over again. I think that once you have those, that list, success criteria list, it's really easy to put the emotion aside and say, well, either we'll tick the boxes or you won't. And I'm cool. And also you feel like confident. I was like, yep, I'm confident that deal will not work. Thank you very much. Call me if things changed. But then you walk away instead of feeling like guilty that you fail, you feel you, you feel other people. And that's what I think what you're referring to in terms of wasting people's time. 
we take that in consideration too, when we're, you know, should I keep going or not? Did that help you? The emotional process, that's what I want to talk to you about, where you like, should I stop wasting people's time or is this worth their time? Is it worth my time? How did you process all of that internally? I think I, I really just kind of put myself on the other side of it. Like I invest in syndications myself. And so I just think about when a syndicator brings me a deal and kind of how, like I personally don't get emotionally invested and I don't spend a lot of time on it. I usually will just say, okay, you've got a deal. This is what projections you're looking at. Like I could maybe earmark this amount of money for it, but I certainly am not committing until they get through due diligence. So I think I, I just, yeah, I just looked at it from the perspective of the potential investors. And then also like another concern I had was like the realtor walking the property, coming for the right. inspection, all this stuff. And I just said, you know what? I, you know, it's not this one, but there's going to be more. We're all going to make money. So I think just sort of reeling myself back in and just, again, like consciously taking the emotion out of it. Yeah. That's the key. And I think it's really hard. So who is that easier for? Let's be honest. It's easier for as you get more experience in this business, you start to get more confidence and you're able to walk away. I know when we walked away from the property that helped us get out of our you know, local market, the, the first property that helped us get there. And we offered a price, it was listed 3.9. We offered 3.3 million. Owner said, go pound sand. Like he didn't really say that, but I like to use it a lot. And it, it, he ended up ended up six months later coming back to us and we got it under contract. And it's probably one of our favorite, most favored prop properties that we have in our portfolio. My point in saying that is we had confidence to walk away. Had that happened five years before, I don't know if we would have walked away, honestly. So how did the newer investors, so that's, that's my point in saying mitigate that. that. Yeah. How do they mitigate that? Because that's a big thing. And I don't want women to wait, you know, five years, 10 years to have that confidence. Cause they're going to, yep. they're going to let their emotions get involved and you know, you know what happens then. So yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if I have the answer to that, but I think that's an important question yeah. That, yeah. that the women well, listening I, need to answer to, to hear. I think the other important thing to note too, is like the women's approach does tend to be different than men. Like I just finished a dissertation where I studied investor psychology and hmm. assessed essentially the difference between men and women. And it wasn't just real estate investing. It was investing in general. And oh, now we're talking the, really my yeah. language right now. Yeah. Let's go. Aaron. And he, you know, the investing world is all about this like dominance, like it's represented by a bull. And like, you know, we think it's all about taking risk. And there's these just like ridiculous headlines. Like I remember reading this one for my research and it literally said, women investors, colon, an oxymoron, question mark. And it just like fired me up. And so anyway, what I learned is that my analysis, this like two and a half year project was that women are better investors than men almost 100% of the time across the board. And it's because we have a different strategy. We are in it for the long game. We typically have a plan before we even get started. And we're okay with holding on and riding out these market cycles, which we all know exist. And then, you know, I guess essentially the only thing that men would outperform women on would be like this a willingness to take on more risk. But for the most part, it doesn't really pay off for them. So, and it's not like a huge difference. It's a fraction of a percentage point, but it does make a big difference over a 30 year, 50 year period when you're building a portfolio. So I just kind of wanted to bring that up, Liz, to, to piggyback off of what you said. Like, sometimes I think we as women, we're like, oh, we're too emotional, but it's okay to be emotional and for your strategy and your business model to have a women's touch. Like you're a woman, that's totally fine. If you have to like consciously sometimes remind yourself to take the emotion out of it, like that's totally a normal thing. I sometimes actually have the opposite effect. And I actually have this note next to my computer that says, say what a good job you're doing for my assistant, because I'm very internally motivated. Like when my husband's like, wow, you did such a good job. It doesn't really matter to me. It really matters what I think. But my assistant yes. and a lot of other people, yeah, they, she like, when I say, wow, this is really great. She's just like beams like from the inside out. And so that's something I have to like constantly remind myself to tell her what a good job she's doing. So anyway, I think learning about yourself is probably the key. As I'm like rambling here, I'm like, I think yeah. it's just figuring out who you are. And then aligning that with your goals. And then back to like what Andressa was saying about having these criteria, those criteria have to be grounded in something, which I think is your why, right? Like your why should be essentially your path from where you are now to where you want to go in a certain period of time. And whatever's on your vision board or your goals for your why, there's typically a dollar amount associated with that. 
And if you can backwards plan from how much money you're making now, you know, passively or actively, whatever your goal is, to what you need to make then, and then come up with an incremental step plan to get there, that's how your criteria is developed. I think sometimes newbies are like, how would you even come up with a criteria? Like I have people all the time, like what's a good cash on cash return on investment? I'm like, well, that honestly depends on you. And it also depends on your strategy. Like I do, my focus is C-class multifamilies, in which case I look for a 20% cash on cash ROI in the Southeast where I invest. And then my other strategy is A-class Airbnbs. And to be honest, I look for a, I look to break even because I'm buying in places that are appreciating. And I'm also buying in places where my family and I, military family who's moving all the time, where we can go. And so we spend two, three year, two, three weeks out of every year at these places. So I'm okay with breaking even, seeing that the property values appreciate and not paying for those vacations and also usually being treated like kings and queens by our property managers. So all that's okay with us. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. I love this. And I love what you're saying about women being better investors. <laughs> love that very much so. But here's the question I have for you. I think there's so and we've done a lot of content creation around cash flow versus appreciation, right? And all the different classes of classes of, of property and that whole world of which where should I focus? What type of market? What, you know, and, and what type of properties in that market, right? So I love your strategy of having both the class A. Airbnb approach with the, you know, buy and hold in, in class C, which is where I call it workforce housing, which is, which is very common for, for me and my husband, where we've focused our rental businesses over the years. Tell us about your thinking behind that and how you play out a more cash flow side of your business with, with an appreciation side of your business. Why haven't you done one or the other? And why do you do both is really the question. And, and just tell us about your thinking, because that thinking and that Strategic thinking is what what I want want the one listening to hear. Yeah, I guess that the when I focus on the C class, I see appreciation as a way to scale, not so much as a wealth building tactic at this point. So we're we're only thirty five. You know, obviously, of course, building wealth is the game plan overall. But I, when I look at these C class properties and I look for that cash flow, it's to allow us to you know live the life that we want now. And then as it appreciates over time, every two, uh, probably three, four years, sometimes even five, we will plan to refinance them and buy more. So the point of appreciation in those is just to increase the number of doors, the number of units that we have without actually spending of, spending our own money. And then I think I see the A-class properties. We only started investing in Airbnbs, you know, short-term rentals, 
this early in 2021, I had to look at my calendar there to confirm the year, (laughs) but we last Christmas, not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before that, my family was like quite literally homeless. We moved from California. We were going to Kansas. We left California on December 9th and our house wasn't ready in Kansas until December 31st. And we just spent like that, those three weeks traveling, which was fine. Like we went to see family and stuff like that, but my kids are at an age now where like, I want them to wake up in a place that they're comfortable with where they can um, enjoy the presents that Santa brought and things like that. And so I kind of had a hard time with that, like having Christmas in a place that wasn't ours. And so that became a part of my why I was like investing in places where my kids could make memories because we like, we're in this house now, we'll be lucky to stay here for two years. We were in California for a year and a half. And so I just think back to like the house I brought my kids home and that was four houses ago, like, you know, home from the hospital, four houses ago, they will never remember those houses, that house. So I want to buy properties where we can take them and, and make those memories and always have that and then hand those to them someday. So I think that the strategy or at least like the reason for buying those is completely different. The C class is like to continue to build my business, build our portfolio, of course, eventually build long-term wealth, but it's really more about the monthly income. And then it's the complete opposite on the other side. It it is more emotional. It's about a place my family can go and a place that will increase in value. We'll have them paid off by the time my kids are ready to enjoy them with their own families and then give them to them. I really like what you're saying because a lot of people have um, the notion that they can achieve all their goals with one only strategy, right? And it's hard. It's really hard to get your cash flow, your cash on cash return, meet your, your personal goals and all in one spot, right? It just doesn't make too much sense. But if you are aware, if you're not aware, I really encourage you to think about different strategies that will meet your needs that you're listening right now differently right? Do I want to do flips right now? Do I want it? Oh, well, it depends. If you tell me like there's a Victorian house that we need to renovate and there's a character there. Oh yeah, I'm I'm on it, right? It is an area that I can drive to the house in five minutes. Yeah, I'm there. Don't tell me there is a rehab, like a square, whatever, an hour from me. I don't want to do, I just don't want to do it. Do I like the capital that a rehab brings to me? Yes. Is that the only thing that I look at it? No. Does that capital can help me to buy rentals? Yes. So how can we mitigate all of that, right? So for all of you that are listening, think about your goals and your needs, but don't put all of them in like trying to find this magical unicorn exit strategy that will (laughs) fulfill all your needs, then it's hard. Then you're going to say nothing that I look at meets my criteria. Well, honey, because your criteria is this long. How about if we break down your criteria? As Erin is saying, very well done because the Airbnbs are about the Christmas, the memories and all of that stuff has nothing to do with anything else. I had this conversation with an investor member another day in terms of partnerships and she never partnered with anybody. And I said, you're going to look into partnering a small deal with somebody that you really like, trust and respect. And I don't care if you make 50 bucks or if you break even. The goal here is for you to practice partnering up with somebody, right? If it is going to cash flow 50 bucks, or if you're going to sell it to make a thousand bucks, I don't care. I don't care. That's not even the goal, right? The goal here is for you to experience how does that look like? And that my criteria look like looks different than Aaron looks like different than, than Liz. Moving forward, Aaron, what is in your horizon? What do you see the, as you meant, we started talking about it, right? That people say, oh, having a hard time with this market. And half of the population says it's going to continue growing all the way up. And half of the population is saying, well, it's going to crash. <laughs> I don't care what it does, right? But I, I'm here, I would like to hear from you from a military perspective, because you have different things that also play around, right? Your locations. How are you preparing for one way or another 
What are your strategies moving forward? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm not really doing anything different than I did. Well, I guess in the beginning, I was okay with being a little over leveraged because I didn't have a lot of cash, but now I I don't own any properties that I don't have at least 25% equity in. And I think, you know, there's a, there is some chance, I guess that it could dip more than that. I'm not anticipating anything like that happening, but I will just plan to ride out that wave and just hold on to it. Like if for some reason, something like 2008 happens again, which we don't have the conditions set for something like that. So I'm not worried about that per se, but at the same time, you know, do you want to have sort of a plan in place? I think I would, for the most part, just ride them out. We have a couple higher end single family homes that we would, we could sell, I think cash out a good amount, build our reserves, and then hold on to those C-class properties. When I first got started, I actually invested in A-class single family homes. So we have three of those still that we could we could easily right now sell. But even if we did have to decrease the price, we'd still have a good amount of equity. So that would be like worst case scenario. But to be honest, I'm just planning to ride it out. You know, we're going to, the renter pool goes up whenever there's a tough and economic situation. Maybe they'll be paying a little bit less. So make sure that you have those contingencies built in. You have a little bit of reserves, but I'm honestly not changing anything that I'm doing in terms of my real estate. I do kind of want to, talk about like my goals. I set a bunch of goals at the end of December or beginning of this year. And here we are, February 9th is today's date. I'm already thinking that I may not pursue some of these goals because they're not contributing to my why. And and so I was talking to you before about a syndication that I had considered pursuing. And I learned a lot through that. I learned how much pressure I felt from everyone else being involved. And now I'm thinking maybe being a syndicator, this would be my first syndication. Maybe being a syndicator is not what I want. I'm looking to, to be honest, like be retired by the time my kids are off school for the summer. So for the first time they're in school, I don't want to hire a nanny for the summer or find childcare and I want to travel. And so I'm putting a lot of things in place so that I can free up my time. And I'm, you know, literally my third, I have my list of goals right here. My third one down is to syndicate a real estate deal. And I'm now thinking I may just completely scratch that off. And I think sometimes that's hard for not just women, just people in general to feel like, like you could, that could feel like quitting in one, in some ways, but there's a lot of thought behind like quitting can be a really good thing if it's not serving you. And it's syndicating does has nothing to do with my why it's just something I've never done. I felt like it was something I wanted to pursue and wanted to try to see if I could do it probably for personal ego reasons. But now I'm realizing like, what purpose does that really serve? And how does that contribute to the life I want to lead? And it doesn't. So I think I'm going to scratch that one off. I love that, Erin. I would say, I would dare to say that you're actually aligning. You're really aligning. I wouldn't even use the word quitting because that doesn't match with you at all. (laughs) Based on everything that you have said, your journey and everything, you didn't quit in any moment. So I think that the women, if we shift from that to like, I'm aligning myself to my goals, my whys, who I became, who I want to become. I think the key, Liz and I build the the investor community for women to come and, and say, listen, I don't have an idea how to freaking create my success criteria. I don't even know my full why. I just think it has to do with family and traveling. Can somebody help me? How can I figure this out? Smart people, ask for help. So I always encourage the woman to come to the community, raise their hand. It's a safe place for you to do that. So you can get the support that you need and really live life yeah. aligned align to what you really want. Yeah. And I think another thing to note here too, is like, I feel like I'm really, really focused on my why now, but I spent a year flipping and I had no business flipping in that year. I did not add one single door to my portfolio. Then I spent eight months wholesaling. And again, I I mean, I worked 18 hour days for eight months and I had zero, I I hated every second of it. Why I did it, I have no idea. But I now know more important than like what you do want to do is the things you don't want to do. Yeah. And that's part of developing your why too. Absolutely. Yeah. So important, right? And and it's it's a process. It's a continual process. This is not like one and done. This is like weekly, day-to-day, at least having that, you know, we would call it the come to Jesus meeting with yourself, your family is so, so important. You get reflective. So love that you're on that journey, Erin. You sound like you're, you're making the right calls that work for you, which is so important on your own terms. So where can the ladies listening learn more about you? 
Yeah, so I have um, a website called bcglobalinvestments.com. Tons of stuff on there. And then you can also email me, Erin, E-R-I-N, at bcglobalinvestments.com. Awesome. And all this information you guys can find on our show notes. We're going to transition to our fabulous three questions. And the first one, Erin, is what's the most transformational book you ever read? It's a book called Who, Not How. And it's all about instead of com- instead of asking yourself, how can I accomplish this? It's more like, who can help me accomplish this? And I feel like it's right on brand for me about, you know, outsourcing and finding the right people to help you elevate your game. Love that book. The second question is, what's the most powerful routine that you do to create a financially free and balanced life? I feel like I might have said in the past a morning routine. However, I have two small children and there no two mornings ever look the same. So I've sort of let go of this concept of a morning routine because really it's the nights, the rough nights that affect the mornings. But I have found like whenever I do have time, sometimes it's, you know, when the kids are at school and it is routine, but sometimes it's like a Sunday afternoon that my husband takes the kids to the playground. I have an hour to regroup or whatever. And I think I always, always start that time with, I have this weekly tracker and it has goals for the week on it. And that's where I start everything is just, what do I have to accomplish this week? And it just grounds me and it makes me feel more productive. And so I think it's just sort of resetting and reminding yourself what you're working for in the long term, but then also what's most important to do right now, today, this week to accomplish those things. Awesome. Last question is which woman famous or not has inspired you the most? Um... I would say I really like Barbara Corcoran's story. I want to, I try to be like her in all, in all senses. I've made my Instagram just like she has like the Barbara Corcoran. So I'm the Erin Hilly. <laughs> um, but yeah, her story is really cool. And she's just, she just has such a great personality. She's a great team leader. And um, yeah. Great. Well, Erin, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with our community and our listeners and excited to see your next chapter unfold. Thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to receive updates on our next interviews, go to our website, therealestateinvestor.com. There, you can subscribe to our show, become part of our investor community, and get updates on upcoming episodes. If you like our show, please share it with other women who would benefit. And don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, we encourage you to take one action as a result of today's show and put it into motion so you can live both a financially free and balanced life. Thanks for spending time with us. Ciao.